0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishich, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sofia Glazunova about her new book, Digital Activism in Russia The Communication Tactics of Political Dissidents, or sorry, of Political Outsiders. Now, Sofia is a postdoctoral research fellow within the Digital Media Research Center at the Queensland University of Technology in Australia. Uh, she specializes in political communication, digital resistance, Russian media, disinformation, fake news, and digital propaganda. So, Sophia, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, yeah, so originally I'm from Russia. I guess you could <laughs> guess it from my surname. Um, I came to Australia to work on my PhD uh, on political communication and digital communication of Russian opposition activist, um, Alexei Navalny. So I came in 2017 and it took me three years to finish my PhD and now I work um, as a postdoc at the Digital Media Research Center at Queensland University of Technology, as you mentioned. And my postdoc project is mostly on uh, digital propaganda of Russian state-affiliated media, such as Russia Today or Sputnik. So I look at their digital audiences Um, But uh, the big chunk of my work is actually dedicated, yes, to digital resistance of Russian opposition or Russian political activists. So this is kind of two tracks of my work that I'm following in the late years, I would say.
0: Right. And um, your book, Digital Activism in Russia, which um, appeared earlier this year, um, examines some of this digital resistance and online communication tactics, that are used by Russian political outsiders. I just called them earlier dissidents, but uh, I guess there is that long tradition of of dissent that now is kind of entering this digital uh, uh, space as well. Um, I'm interested, um, how did you become kind of um, attracted to this area of research and, and looking into these practices?
1: Yes, I mean <laughs> remarks towards dissidents. I always also want to call them dissidents. So um, it's 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 a long discussion that we have with our colleagues as well. Um, but how I came interested, how I become interested in this topic. So basically, I think I will start a little bit early when I was uh, doing my um, bachelor degree in political science in Russia, um, and it was actually the time. So it was 2010, 2011, and that was the time when first major uh, protests in Russia broke out uh, and they were called for fair elections and they were um, uh, dedicated to kind of a large parliamentary, uh, like electoral fraud uh, during the parliamentary elections in Russia. And I was studying and like all of us, like my groupmates and me, like we were like all excited and interested, like what's happening. So they were like really big. And we saw that a lot of social media uh, practices or digital platforms were heavily involved and some of these young uh, activists and leaders appear, such as Alexei Navalny, Yaryashin, and uh, many others. So um, we observed that, and um, these protests were also really quickly uh, suppressed, and a lot of leaders were arrested or kind of um, were marginalized. And this, But the scale of this protest was really um, significant and important, and also it came in parallel with... Um, um, the Arab Spring movement or like some movements in, in the U.S. So it was interesting, like what role digital media play in that. So this was back in 2011, 2012. Um, and then when I continued with my academic career and I moved to Australia, and then it was 2017 and another wave of protests occurred, which is was similar to 2011-12. Uh, and it was also organized by people like Alexei Navalny And um, it it was triggered by the release of the documentary that they created with his team, uh, which was was called He's Not Demon to You, uh, about the kind of alleged corruption of the former russian prime minister dmitry medvedev and i saw these two events and they came like in a different time and like after the suppression of the movement 2012 like it was interesting to me why these people could still organize this mass protest like how like what practices did they use why they were successful in organizing it um and this kind of led me to the questions like what communication strategies they use and um, as i said at the beginning that i'm mostly interested in my specialization is political communication so i really wanted to answer kind of these uh questions to myself like what role digital media played like how how they were able to organize it again. And this was subsequently became a topic of my PhD thesis and subsequently a book <laughs> that we yeah, discussed earlier.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, I'm interested in this, you said political communication, and I guess I'm interested in the, the disciplinary framework of, of your study. Um, how, how do you kind of approach research in this area? What, how would you describe the disciplinary profile of your work? And, and also if you can tell us a bit about the sources that you use for your research.
1: Yes. Um so I think so I was originally studying political science and when I was studying it, um, a lot of my colleagues and professors um like back in Russia um, um, I always studied political communication and at that time I couldn't figure how to call this field or like, I still haven't read a lot probably. Um, and then it was like, no, this is not political science. Like you study like public relations, you study, I don't know, communication of pol- politicians. Like this is not political science. And then finally, when I came to a political or uh, in a communication department, they say, Oh, cut this political science from your thesis. <laughs> so, um, as you understand, I'm kind of migrating between departments, and this is kind of, uh, this is the field that I'm in. So it's located in the intersection of political and communication sciences. And if we discuss what it is, so it's kind of a strategic communication about politics and between various groups of actors and traditional, especially in like in the Western uh, uh, tradition and uh, in, in literature, it says that uh, this is communication between like political actors such as parties, political organizations, different government bodies, but also the news media and the citizens. So these are like three pillars. Um, I, in my thesis, a little bit reflect that uh, nowadays I think we should also include... Um, such actors as public relations specialists, which kind of mediators between these actors, but also digital platforms. So we see that um, they not only mediums or mediators between these. Um, kind of political communicators, but also they take stance in different political events of significance. So, for example, I don't know, Cambridge Analytica scandal. So we know that they're involved in politics some some way or another, or I don't know, recent purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk and (laughs) all all the political consequences that follow with it. So um, this is the field that I'm at, and this is kind of the actors that I look at. but I, I look at kind of at the content and what are the groups of the actors that are um, that are like communicating about politics or through politics. And as I work in digital media research center specifically, I mostly work with social media data, um, so different um, you know networks of users we analyze social media data big data uh, for my book specifically i analyzed youtube video of alexei navalny and his colleagues um, that that's organized protests in 2017-19 um, so these are kind of social media data but for my for my book for example i also use traditional Media sources such as news articles, government documents, and academic literature, of course.
0: And now that, that's very interesting. I'm always curious about you know, researchers who work um, in, the, in between these disciplinary areas. And um, yet yeah, it's despite uh, all the rhetorics about um, interest in interdisciplinary research, um, there's always this tendency to, to put you in either one group <laughs> or another group. Uh, uh, but your book manages these challenges quite well. Um, and uh, I was wondering if we could go go back before, right, the birth of these uh, digital media and platforms, uh, because you open your discussion um, by reflecting on the liberalization of the Russian public sphere during the period of uh, Perestroika and and Glasnost. Um, What did the media landscape in Russia look like in this first decade after the end of the Soviet Union? And what were some of the channels for expressing political opposition or, or dissent publicly at this point in time?
1: Um, yeah, so I don't think like I know how it looked like because I wasn't born <laughs> or I was very young, <laughs> but um I think I gathered from literature but also some kind of stories and personal experience um that it was really despite I was liberal it was really cha- chaotic, <laughs> and as so as was the state of the country after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and from a personal kind of story and experience um in that time, both of my parents were really young and they both decided to become journalists. So this this is all where my uh, story comes from because I kind of heard and, and know from, like, from my family um, that at that time it was really exciting and adventurous profession. It was also really prestigious. Um, so like both of them kind of uh, learned from scratch, joined like local television channel or newspaper to uncover this, you know, um, politics and events uh, in my small city. And, like, again, like, it was really prestigious and courageous at the time because, I don't know, um, from history and from, um, if you know something about uh, journalism in Russia, political journalism, it was really dangerous because um, a lot of journalists, like, lost their lives uh, during that period and in the the 2000s as well. So, um, yes, this was a period of... um, At first, what was seen as liberalization and also freedom, so um, the hard censorship lifted, so some um, information about, you know, government bodies or government politics about history uh, were actually now transparent and available and people could analyze it. And this actually also was the time where um, investigative journalism was, I would say, not bored, but, like, flourished. And... um, It's I think that's what kind of I reflected in my book a lot that this period didn't last long (laughs) and this chaotic uh, political situation and financial crisis uh, crisis um, also led to this so-called media wars, which where wealthy businessmen or oligarchs acquired major media assets in the country to influence uh, political uh, life in the country to influence political events. So these are people like uh, Boris Berezovsky or Vladimir Gusinsky. So they owned major TV channels in the country and controlling the flows of information. So um yes journalists could be critical or like you know um opposition could come to the television and and express their opinions but at the same time uh it was all kind of dependent on the business decisions of these people and how they wanted to rule their assets um and also um at that time um for example these people helped to um elect then president Bar- uh, Boris Yeltsin um, and this, this was called this alliance of oligarchs called seven bankers so um, Yeltsin has really low uh, publicity ratings and these bankers uh, helped him to re-elect and to get again the political influence so when we say liberal we say um, <laughs> um, when we say it was open it was still kind of um, not not free and, and kind of oligarchy in a way and um following that again so when vladimir putin came to power so this criticism that could appear uh, on the television or like in major newspapers or, like uh people were discussing openly the uh, chechen war on the on the television and in newspaper when vladimir putin came this of course changed and kind of his rule and his um government saw to the this shuffle of major media assets to more loyal to businessmen, to Kremlin and some government structure. So um, this period was, I think, I don't know, like as, as as my parents described it to me, was like really interesting and adventurous, but at the same time, kind of it laid the foundations for what political communication will be in the 2000s. Uh,
0: right, so from this kind of relatively liberal um period, we move to more recent decades and you focus on this emergence of the internet and social media, which has of course had major impact on political life all over the world, including in in Russia. Um, How have political actors in Russia used the internet to reach the public? Um, And how has this access to and use of online media outlets changed over the last two decades? Yeah, so I will start
1: from a history a little bit again, um, because I think um, in compared to like western countries the internet development in russia was lagging significantly and occurred uh, mostly in the 2000 due to again political and financial crisis that happened in the uh, what is called dashing 90s um so um at the beginning of the 2000s um yes the uh, internet and kind of major political communication online happened so major news websites such as gazette Ru, and started to be prominent and then the first blog started to appear in the mid-2000s, um, and particularly the Platform Life Journal was popular. And a lot of bloggers kind of that we know now, or like we knew in 2010, they actually came from that era, including Navalny as well. So um, also um, Russian copycats of um, major... Um, uh, digital platforms such as for example uh, Vkontakte, which is a copycat of facebook and Adnoklasniki, which was a copycat um, of classmates so they also emerged in the mid-2000s and later the uh, western uh, platforms came to russia as well so all of this happened in the 2000s uh, i must say and at the beginning like from the literature from sort of kind of impression um that i have that approach of like the government uh, to internet was Relatively open, so they all came. Um, Internet was perceived as public good um, in official discourse, and even in the presidency of Dmitry Medvedev, um, 2008 to 2012, he made the internet the focal point of his modernization program, and um, so this was this all changed again during the protest for fair elections, which I talked a little bit in the beginning. So um, they went in parallel with the Arab Spring events or like some major protests in the US and uh, Russian protests for fair election also like broke out in that time. And they were seen as threatening to the existing political regimes. And since that, the rhetoric towards the internet and digital platforms kind of changed. Um, And also um, I think authorities saw that platforms like facebook and contacted they were crucial in actually organization of the protests and the communication of the protest uh, protesters with the opposition leaders and um internet and social media started to be seen as threat and around 2014 um i think there were kind of uh, a change of the strategy towards internet and it was mostly seen as sort of a project of the u.s intelligence agencies and russia was um the russian government needed to protect its national interests within the internet sphere like i don't know move servers of major uh uh western platforms to russia and so on and so forth and there were a lot of elements to that so this is what kind of got the name of um sovereign in sovereign sovereign internet um and there are a lot of elements to this strategy and I probably won't go too deep to that and um But I think it was really important to see this kind of shift from, again, looking at Internet as something uh, really positive and, um, you know, progressive, I would say, than uh, seeing it as a threat. And we could see how, like, gradually and now in 2020s, these uh, platforms are um, deemed as extremists or, like, trying to be shut down. So the communication of the opposition through 2010s was based um, um on digital media but more and more it's seriously impacted these mm-hmm,
0: days mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in your book you mentioned you already noted this. of contacted but also you talk about live journal and telegram can you just maybe tell a little bit about these platforms for our audience who, who may not be familiar with the uh, russian media space
1: um yeah so contact is uh, again as i said copycat of the um Western platform Facebook. So it was created by Russian tech entrepreneur um, uh, Pavel Durov. Um, and basically a lot of features were um, similar or reminding of Facebook and it became really popular and it was also really used um, during the protest as well. So the same um, owner, Pavel Durov, also uh, launched uh, Telegram. And um, the story, which is like a messenger, messenger app, Um, The story behind that is that also because contact was um, used by protesters, it was kind of seen as a threat to um, kind of a coup d'etat or like help like a medium where like, you know, protesters gather and can, you know, threaten the existing regime. Um, There's also... um, a lot of there was a lot of news, and Durov himself uh, kind of claimed on social media that he's forced to self it to kind of pro-pro government or affiliated with the government uh, business structures. And he left Russia. He left Kontakti and organized uh, Telegram as a safe messaging app. And it's interesting as well that um, and I mean contact has a really big audience in Russia and also post-Soviet countries and like all like among audiences who speak uh, Russian language. Um, And it's interesting now how like with in 2022, this year was, um, I would say, hard for international um, tech giants in Russia. Um, So, but now Telegram is kind of a trusted medium for both camps in Russia, both uh, pro-Kremlin and also uh, opposition channels. So this is where actually all the communication and um, all sorts of information are there at this moment.
0: Right, right. Um, so we'll talk about this change of how media outlets are, are used uh, for political communication in the past two decades. And really the central figure of your, of your book is the, the case of Alexei Navalny and, and his kind of embrace of different forms of digital resistance. Um, you describe him as a politician, an amateur journalist, activist and, and a blogger. Um, tell us about the Navalny online phenomenon.
1: Yeah, so um, something that I find, I think, different from, again, the Western cases and the Western politics that due to the um, nature of the authoritarian regime or like before it was called uh, electoral authoritarianism. So um, I won't go too deep into that, but um, basically type of authoritarian regime. Um, So. in general, the struggles um, of the journalism sector, which is, I would say, frankly, in a long decay in Russia. So political communicators have to try on different political roles to navigate this dif- difficult uh, public sphere, dif- difficult and um, monopolized environment. So Navalny um, Alexei, he became known as an activist and um, in the mid-2000s and he was participating in different, um, actually, from the beginning, nationalistic marches, and he was organizing them. But at the same time, he was also be- uh, belonging and entering some liberal parties. Um, for example, a party called Yabloka, or I don't know, Apple, if you translate it to English. Um, so he ran, uh, during his career, he ran several times for office. So he ran as a mayor of Moscow. He ran as a um, president uh, like of Russia for the for the presidential campaign, but he never succeeded. Um, so um, among other things, because of the kind of uh, suppression of the regime and like he's for example um trying to be elected to office so we would co- we would consider him as a politician but from a kind of practical and like normative point of view he was never elected so he got some good results in the for example elections um uh for the mayor of Moscow but he never kind of um, was elected so we can't call him a politician in a you know normative sense but still kind of from a point of view that he was struggling for power and trying to be you know enter the office and political system he's still trying on this political role. Um, and also, because he's trying this role, he's using different practices that are ascribed to politicians. For example, I don't know, the uh, buzzword that I use these days, populism. Um, so he used since 2010s and 11s a really populist practices and um and, you know, slogans kind of associating himself with the people um, and saying like, you know, we, us, and kind of making him, himself close to the people, but at the same time, opposing himself to the elite, which is um, led by Vladimir Putin. So these are like these two elements, they're central to populism and he used this a lot in 2010 and as I show in my book also in his uh, digital communication to be closer to people and to recruit more people to his cause so this is kind of a politician profile then um we also have activism profile so i was already mentioned that um he was trying to be he was organizing different protests and like participating in some uh marches but also since uh late 2000s early 2010s he um started to uh be involved in this anti-corruption uh activities and active anti-corruption um uh, uh, he was organizing the protests. he was doing some documentaries, he was uh, launching some websites where people could report some corruption crimes. Crimes, But again, if we look at the um, practical point of view, like did he achieve his goals, for example, um, did the protesters that he uh, gathered on the streets achieve achieve their purposes? It's usually the opposite. So they mostly, uh, the protests dismantled, the movement kind of disintegrates. Um, the protesters didn't, don't achieve their goal so again here like we're more talking about the role rather than you know actual kind of um success of the cause i would say um then um so this is two profiles that i explain now journalism comes to place so what is the media environment that navalny communicates so like he was involved in you know media interviews and kind of was hosting some interviews um on the uh, kind of uh, media, like liberal media me- media outlets or media shows. Um, but then more and more after the protest for fair election, the censorship in the country started to be um, hard and like it was uh, difficult to get access to mainstream media, which were mostly talking about the uh, government and political regime and not about the um, opposition. So not having access to that, um, he stepped up and his team stepped up as actually amateur journalists, so they started to produce documentaries on, um, for example, and news on their personal YouTube channels. They created a, a channel called Navalny Life. So in the sense, again, um, they were this amateur journalists. They didn't get any formal education. They didn't have this journalistic socialization. Uh, they didn't go through this set of norms. Um, but they stepped up as the internet watchdogs of the society in the 2010s, as I argue in my book. And probably the last case with a blogger's profile. So again, I already mentioned that Navalny, for example, used uh, LiveJournal at the beginning, and then he moved to all other platforms. Um, and they use this you know, um, creatively and efficiently, I would say multiple features of the platforms and websites. They use particular genres to attract audiences and make their content viral. But also, they were not commercial bloggers. So, you know, they, I mean, they might kind of ask their audiences to donate uh, money for their costs, but it's not clear whether they could use it commercially. So again, their goals were more political in this sense. So these kind of roles that I described, they kind of influence what practices they use. And these are, for example populism as i mentioned or some you know investigative documentaries that are in journalism uh, or like genre that they're using so they're using all these things to kind of survive this difficult political environment and resist authoritarianism and maybe they don't achieve their goals but um, in that time and i must say that i'm talking most about 2010 so now situation is uh, uh vastly vastly different yeah um so they use it to Again, strengthen their popularity, recruit supporters, uh, protesters, and yeah, frankly, survive in this rigid political
0: regime. Yeah, I was interested because mostly for most of the audience that's not based in Russia, right? Navalny is known for the YouTube videos, but it's interesting to see that kind of their um, his and, and the, the strategy of his team is quite comprehensive across across different platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now I think we also kind of see him in these documentary films that have been quite. Um, interesting and, and captured certainly audience's attention, including here in, in Australia. Um, now, you go through uh, different strategies that Navalny and, and his team use in, in developing these, these vi- videos. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about this technique of unboxing. Um, you, you do, this is kind of an example of a media strategy that has become almost a hallmark feature of, of his videos.
1: Um, yeah, so um, as I mentioned in the beginning, so I was analyzing Navalna's videos and I came across several unboxing videos and to explain what is unboxing and who never faced this genre on YouTube is uh, basically unpacking of commercial products in front of the audiences. Um, it's very popular YouTube genre. It, it brings brings millions to YouTube creators Um so, maybe, maybe we chose the wrong profession with you, Ima. <laughs> um, but um, it also attracts really young audiences, and many of them also uh, happen to be um, in Russia, also Novellas supporters. So, their studies and kind of there were a lot of discussions in the media that a lot of people who come to Novellas protests are also young people. Um, so, um, but also, what I kind of argue in my book that. Um, Navalny, like, skillfully adapts his message to A, the platform, which is YouTube, B, to his audiences. So, but he uses it and... um... Alter it in a interesting way because he used unboxing for political purposes um, And and at, at the same time he entertains his audiences and make his content viral. So um, There were two videos one video He unpacks the gadget produced by the Russian state corporation and kind of demonstrate that it's its failure and that it's not worth The money and they I don't know billions of, of, of rubbles that were spent on this are kind of um, are wasted and so by Doing this, he kind of demonstrates the um, decay or like, um, you know, failure of the uh, Russian government bodies to, you know, do some (laughs) amazing things, I would say, like progressive things. But at the same time, he didn't take his audiences by the style that he's using. And then another video um uh, he got um what is called youtube button so when youtube sends its creators the kind of reward saying that you got i don't know one million subscribers um and they send him this button and he unpacks it in front of his audiences but at the same time he asks um his audiences like on the demographics like you know who are you where are you living what's your job because youtube uh doesn't give us the statistics so these are clearly political purposes you know he might use it for his electoral campaigns um, but at the same time he doesn't intend to sell this product so this is kind of different from what unboxing or like the uh, kind of the nature of unboxing to sell the products and you know they get paid for that uh, he doesn't intend to sell this product so he used it for political purposes and this is what I called political unboxing in my book I don't know maybe some <laughs> there, there's some other names to that but yeah it's basically. Unpacking and then kind of uh, to serve his political ser- purposes.
0: No, I really kind of um, was captured by this idea, right? That this is a, a genre very specific, like genre on this platform, but uh, re- used now for for political purposes and and um, as a part of his right strategic arsenal. Uh, in addition to Navalny, your book kind of discusses some other um, activists in this space. Um, And, of course, you know that his online success has has had a big influence on other political outsiders. Um, Have any of these outsiders had similar success in reaching the public using these novel online strategies, do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think in... in, uh um our field success is a relative measure <laughs> um so i can't say you know they were successful i mean Navalny now um in prison and all of his um not all but most of his colleagues and allies like or fled the country or um In a sense, they couldn't achieve their political goals, like, for example, being elected or, like, you know, uh, achieve the protesters' goals during the protest. But what they achieved is, of course, that they also became very popular and very viral, and they used similar communication tactics. So in my book, I look at um, another case of um, his colleagues and allies, uh, such as, for example, Lubov Sobol. Ilya Yashin or Ivan Zdanov. So these are the colleagues that um, were, um, elect, uh, were trying to be elected to the Moscow City Duma uh, election in 2019. Um, and all of them, again, due to the um, regime kind of characteristics, they were refused the registration to participate in these elections. Um, and I kind of um, I watched through the YouTube videos as well and kind of found a lot of similarities. So um, they use it in the same way that Navalny used in terms of style, like you know how they dress, uh, what they say, because I analyze the content and kind of they used uh, similar populist uh, techniques that Navalny was using, um, to kind of provide this alternative political information and, and organize protests in support of the candidates, because in that time as well they were one of the few activists that could actually uh, repeat the success of, you know, 2011 protest, 2017, and now 2019. And a lot of the um, um, kind of techniques that I look at, like digital activism practices, um, they were um, similar, uh, like even in the sense, for example, that they used uh, sort of mini documentaries or like ad hoc documentaries on local politics in Moscow to draw attention to the serious problems, and they that they also refused their registration to election. So um, I kind of saw the snap um, ad hoc mini versions of Navalny's resistance, and of course they all worked together. You know, some of them were Navalny's employees, some of them, you know, just colleagues, and they. Probably borrowed each other these strategies and kind of probably
0: yes we can we can say about a, a wave of activists who are using similar techniques. Yes, of course. Um, I have to agree with with your uh, reflection on the success. It's it's um, in Russian political context, success is is not kind of zero sum game. It's many different shades. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. This sort of uh, we can't always judge that in 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 those absolute terms. Um. I was wondering, you know, we are now right at the end of 2022. It's been a pretty turbulent year. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the current state of digital activism in in Russia, and and if you have access to any kind of um, sources um, that are currently kind of being produced.
1: Oh, hard question and hard answer. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Like in the um, uh, 2005, there's a um, scholar uh, russia scholar Vladimir gelman who called russian opposition dance pieces i wonder how we call them now because i think they're um, in serious danger of extinction and of course due to the war um and probably i think in the last 30 years probably the uh, biggest challenges that activists are facing in russia so um like i was describing the case from 2017 and 2019 and a lot of people that i'm talking about my book either imprisoned uh, as Alexander navalny in 2021 before that he was poisoned um, either arrested uh, for example now Ilya yashin uh, one of the opposition leaders are uh, currently under arrest Uh, Or some of them and a lot of Navalny associates actually fled the country. So the resistance and the uh, leaders, opposition leaders are, um, well, the the movement is uh, severely disintegrated. And um, so this is from kind of a leader's point of view. um, But also we have to think about Russian users or like Russians who are, um, like at the moment, I mentioned already the um, ban and like, Um, Demon, Facebook and Instagram as extremist platforms in Russia. Other platforms also uh, face or will face a ban of, you know, um, uh, shutting down um, in Russia. And users have to use uh, virtual private networks or VPNs to access information. So this is another side to that. Then if you look at critical media outlets and the media that um, I talked a little bit um, uh, today, but um, such uh, media outlets that are, um, for example, activist media outlets or, um, I don't know, some internet media outlets that were um, criticizing the political regime, they are also now or shut down or are forced to operate from abroad or deemed as uh, foreign agents. So... um, it's really hard, uh, close to impossible, to communicate alternative political information now in in Russia, or perform activism. So there were some anti-war protests that happened um, at the beginning of the war, um, and like, to be honest, if if it, it looks a little bit apocalyptic, and it it, it does, it definitely does feel so. Um, but I I don't know, maybe it's just my kind of uh, nature to still find things that you know can give us some light <laughs> so like even in the i don't know times of the heart iron curtain um uh, like in the soviet union dissidents still found a way to access al- alternative political information and i don't know through creative ways for example through art and literature other forms of communication to communicate the ideas to um kind of criticize oppose that the regime that they were having and these days our users or like uh, russians or you know citizens they have much more possibilities having still having access to internet um um maybe changing their way of communicating for example the case of telegram that i mentioned that some platforms like uh, the shift towards other platforms happened like i don't know from facebook to for example telegram uh, that our users are now like you know constantly searching for um like any political information there so um yeah this like from all sides you could say that um, you know it's seriously embedded this political communication and i mean even if we look at navalny himself so he continues communicate from prison which is kind of <laughs> i don't know if it's uh, really widespread uh, in the country but he communicates through his lawyers or his team and they publish posts from him on twitter if you if you go to his page um and then his team continues to do these documentaries from abroad and kind of do this all initiatives um in despite all the obstacles so um yeah <laughs> i i i hope that it doesn't it doesn't mean that it ceases to exist but yeah definitely i think the greatest challenges maybe. I don't know, maybe even uh, bigger going to come. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, choice. no, no, that's That's, yeah, um, of course, something that we'll be following closely. Um, Sophia, thank you so much for talking to us about your book, Digital Activism in Russia. Um, today, it's a, it's a terrific read. And um, I'm curious to, to know what it is that you're working on at the moment.
1: Yep, so um, following this uh, topic of digital resistance and some things that I talked today, um, I actually want so my book describes YouTube and kind of as a platform um, and how Navalny and his colleagues use it, but I now want to look more at the cross-platform communication of modern Russian dissidents and how they interact with users, so... Platforms that I also mentioned are not Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, or maybe some Russian platforms as well. So I want to look how they communicate across these platforms, what drives their choices. Um, I also want to kind of know what groups of activists are there still to maintain this flow of opposition communication in Russia, because, you know, even with uh, glassness and like this kind of openness, like when this um, communication of the civil society still continues it's it still leads to uh, in a long in a long term perhaps uh to kind of give this pathway to political changes uh, in the future um so i kind of want to look at who these people are what platforms they use, and what platform features they uh, employ to maintain this flow of um, alternative political information what discourses and maybe what media object they're using to uh, make their communication uh, going and um again I mentioned in the beginning so another part of my project um as a postdoc is the how to um kind of um the digital propaganda and um, you know different um how like um state affiliated media communicates with uh, audiences so I want to also want to look how like digital dissidents or users uh, resist the propaganda and surveillance and different authoritarian practices. So these are all questions that I try to find answers. I don't know if I'm successful in
0: this, but right, yeah. Fan- fantastic. Now I wish you uh, all the very best for your future research. Um, I do have. Um, uh, final question, given that we are both based in, in Australia uh, and we just had elections um, earlier this year and we saw a change of government, um, I'm, I'm curious to know how what, what was your, kind of, your thoughts about uh, particularly this, this issue, the political communication um, in social media, in, in Australian case, do you see any similarities, any themes coming, coming that you recognize from your research on, on Russia?
1: Oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> D- different political regimes, different, uh, diff- different, different party systems. Um, I would also say, um, I don't know. This, um, I was a little bit. I wasn't really um analyzing or studying the elections, but I kind of got acquainted with like whether uh, a lot of disinformation and misinformation was spread di- during the election, which wasn't that much. And it's uh, really, I think, um, uh, positive news to, <laughs> to many, which I uh, like these days trying to fight this. Um, it's a hard question because I think in, in the essence, um, political communication, uh, despite of the regime, has always the same goals, um, which is, you know, um, strategically uh, kind of rich, audiences strategically, you know, inform, um, I don't know, deliver some um, political information influence and in this sense in the very essence it's it's the same meaning of political communication and and also on social media how you know politicians communicate online it's um maybe the content is different but how they communicate it's not really uh, different i would say so um of course i think the 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 key is in the content and uh, how like what what do they say what you know for example uh public relations um or like electoral techniques they're using to communicate um so um i don't know like i <laughs> did, did you have any insights as well <laughs> from uh, from the current campaign uh,
0: well look I'm, i was I, I think that obviously the political um the level of engagement political engagement in australia is clearly much different to, to what we see in russia and other eastern european countries um uh, but the, the engagement with the social media in, in that political communication is quite high, I think, in, in Australia. And there's probably something um, there's something about maybe space that I always see similarity in, in between Australia and Russia in that kind of the huge territory and dispersed population um, that media, the social media, media maybe play much bigger role um, or a significant role um, or, or a, I guess maybe a, a different kind of role than uh, maybe in some other areas. Uh, but um, I I yeah, was very curious to, to hear your thoughts on it. And I, I do want to thank you for um, answering my hard questions <laughs> um, and, and to thank you again for um, sharing your work with us today.
1: Thanks very much for organizing for your excellent questions as well. <laughs>